So for the month of December, we're going to do what we did last December, and that is to pause our Through the Bible study so that we can take this month and focus upon what this season really means. I hope we really will be able to move past the familiar and, um, like a child, be able to see with eyes of wonder uh, what this time of year really ought to mean to us, and I pray that it will have an impact uh, on all of us. There was a mother who was at the mall at Christmas time, rushing frantically from store to store, and in her busyness and in her absent-mindedness, she suddenly realized that that tiny three-year-old hand that had been clutching hers was no longer clutching her hand, and her heart began to race. Any parents ever been there? I lost my daughter in the mall one time. I'll just go ahead and confess that. One of the scariest moments of my life. And so this mother uh, began to retrace her steps through the mall, pushing her way through the crowds, and she suddenly looked up and saw her son gazing through a store window, looking at a manger scene. And she began to scream his name, and, and he heard his mother's hysterical call, and he turned around and, and looked at her, and he, he said, look, mommy, it's Jesus. It's baby Jesus in the manger. And the mother ran up and grabbed his arm, did one of those arm jerks that mothers do to their kids. And she said to him in an angry voice, come on, we don't have time for that. Well, I suppose in all fairness, we can't be too harsh on that mom because the Christmas season has a tendency to do that to all of us. In the rush and the pace of things, it's very easy for impatience to grip us all. But as I look around, I see that the, the truth is our culture has drifted so far from that very first Christmas where we see in the Bible people filled with wonder and awe and amazement at the thought and the sight of that baby. We see people in the Bible rushing at that first Christmas, but we see them rushing to see Jesus. The Bible says that the shepherds went to Bethlehem with great haste. Those people seem to have something that has been lost in our modern Christmas rush. They had a sense of wonder. And if the message of Christmas has become dull to us, it's not the fault of the message. It's that We've lost the awe and the wonder of the message, but it's so easy for that to happen. Christmas always brings a flurry of shopping and cooking and unfinished to-do lists and traffic jams and crowded stores. And goodness knows my cooking list is growing longer every day of the Christmas baking that I have to do. I don't know anything about that, but apparently people cook a lot at Christmas you know, our focus so easily gets caught up in trees and lights and decorations and cards and presents and get-togethers, and all of those things are fine, but when you strip them all away, the real wonder of Christmas is still in who that baby in the manger was. That's the wonder. But the baby gets lost in it all, and, and I'd like to, if I can, 
to bring the baby back into sharp focus this morning. In fact, for the next three Sundays, in our midst of all the wonderful things about Christmas, I want us to see the real wonders of Christmas. And so, for the next three weeks, God willing, if, if the creek don't rise, as they say, uh, we're going to be looking at this. Uh, today, I want us to consider the wonder of who. And no, that's not the World Health Organization. That's the... Because I know that's what everybody thinks now when you see that word. The wonder, the wonder of who. Who is Christmas all about? Next Sunday, I want us to consider the wonder of how. How all this came to be, this miraculous, bizarre plan of God to set all this in motion. And then on the 20th, I want us to wrap it all up by talking about the wonder of why. Why did God do this? Why Why does the incarnation of his son matter to us? What does it all mean? So that's our plan for the next three weeks. This morning, I want us to think about the wonder of who. Who that baby in the manger was, because that baby really is the center of it all. You know, we could celebrate Christmas without trees, without carols, without lights, without presents. We could even celebrate Christmas without the shepherds without the star, without the wise men, but without that baby in the manger. And more importantly, without understanding who that baby in the manger was, there would be nothing to celebrate. That baby is the central wonder and mystery of Christmas. And it's so easy for him to be overlooked. The entire meaning and purpose of everything we read about and sing about and celebrate at Christmas emanates from who that baby in the manger was and is. Some people say that baby was just an ordinary child who grew up to become nothing more than a good teacher. Some say he was nothing more than a nice person who traveled around teaching good morals to people. But it's absolutely critical for us to understand what the Bible says about that child in the manger, how the Bible describes the wonder, the miracle, the majesty, the glory of who that baby was. And there are so many verses to choose from when talking about this topic. And so I really, you guys can thank me later, but I really disciplined myself to whittle my list down so that it would be manageable this morning, so that uh, your ears wouldn't start bleeding and fall off by the time I finish going through all this. We're only going to be here for two hours this morning. I've cut it, I've cut it down that far. It's not going to be quite that long. But here, here are a few. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. And again, we can quote these in our sleep if we spent any time in church, but try Try to just clean the slate in your mind and try to absorb these words like you were hearing them for the first time. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Circle or highlight the word God. Let's not miss that. That one who came in the manger in some inexplicable way was God. 1 Timothy 3.16 
And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Highlight or circle the word God. There it is again. God was manifested in the flesh. John 1.1. Oh, we know this so well. But do we? In the beginning was the Word, capital W. That's a name for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If anybody can fully explain that to me, please see me afterwards. I'm still trying to get my mind around all of this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Those three verses describe so beautifully the eternality, the grandeur, the the power of the Son of God. But then in verse 14, we're kind of rocking along in these verses, and we go, okay, wow, that's a lot to take in. You know, the the majesty of, of who the Son of God was, not only that he was the Son of God, but he was God the Son. They're separate, but... They're one. And we go, okay, I'm, I'm kind of I'm getting a picture of his majesty and glory. And then in verse 14, there's a seemingly impossible leap that takes place when it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And our minds begin to shut down. It seems too much for us to take in. And in just that small sampling of verses, our minds spin. They begin to try to grasp the miracle of the incarnation, that moment when God poured himself into human flesh and became a man. That's the wonder of it all. That there in the manger is the very one who created all things and by whom all things are held together, Hebrews 1 tells us. A lot of people in the Bible wrote about the Savior who came. Isaiah had a lot to say about it, and I just struggled today to know which passage to go to. You know, it's hard to get up year after year and teach the Christmas story without just saying the same things over and over again. And really, honestly, that would be fine. That would be plenty. But I want this, I want us to see this in ways that perhaps we've never thought about it before. And so I settled on the book of Isaiah you know, we've been in the Old Testament, we've been spending a lot of time there, and, and so I wanted to just maybe connect this in some way for us today. Isaiah wrote about the coming of that baby, and he gives us a glimpse into his glory and majesty. For instance, in Isaiah 9-6, another passage we know so well, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, And the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from that time and forevermore. Listen, that's not the resume of an ordinary person. Those words thunder with the majesty and the glory of just who that baby in the manger actually was. When we see the pretty 
watercolor sketches of the manger scene, we usually think, oh, how cute. But what Isaiah and the other writers of the Bible want us to see as we gaze at the manger is not how cute, but how holy, how awesome, how mighty, how powerful, how glorious that baby is. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. I want us to spend a few minutes just gleaning from the surface just a few powerful truths, and I want us to consider from these verses how big God is. And as we consider how big God is, I want us to remember that we're talking about that baby in the manger. In chapter 40, Isaiah is talking about the coming of the Lord into the world, and in verse 3, he begins by saying something that will sound very familiar to you if you're a little familiar with the New Testament. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be exalted and every mountain and hill will be made low and the crooked will be made straight and the rough places smooth and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Wow. And all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now that first verse there in verse 3 is a, is a prophecy about John the Baptist who would come and announce the coming of Christ. And they tie directly into the, the New Testament passages in Matthew 3.3 3 and Mark 1.3 and Luke 3 verse 4 and also over in John chapter 1 a little bit later on, I think around verse 22 or 23. And then Isaiah begins to describe just how big our God is. This chapter is written in sort of a strange way. Isaiah kind of goes through repeating cycles of things as he describes how big God is. And I've picked, I think, um, seven. I, I never do that, but I'm just going to touch on these really quickly to give us a, a, a full, wonderful glimpse of who that baby in the manger really was. And in verse 6 of chapter 40, the first thing we see is that this baby in the manger is Lord of all rulers and kingdoms. That's number one, Lord of all rulers and kingdoms. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 40. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass, the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And then later, as he comes back to this in the chapter, in verses 23 and 24, he extends this image. He says, He, that is God, brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth meaningless. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner have their stems taken root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like stubble. Anybody feeling big about yourself now? Isaiah was writing to people who had been crushed by the power of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, ruled the world with great power and put fear into the hearts of people. And, and so God's people, the Israelites, 
had been brought under the terror of Nebuchadnezzar, and they were well aware right now of how powerful human rulers can be. And Isaiah is telling them to always remember that compared to even the most powerful rulers on earth, our God can simply blow a breath. And even the mightiest, most powerful, most feared people will be brought to nothing. And it's a reminder for us that our lives are not in human hands. This is such an important thing for us to take with us today. In this year that we're living in, we feel like our entire world has come under the control of people. We feel like we've been told everything we can and cannot do this year, and it's just ramping up, folks. And so there's a tendency for fear to set in to all of us. I deal with this with my children, especially our daughter, to try to encourage her that no matter who's in charge, no matter how powerful or fearful some leaders of the world may appear, our lives are not in human hands. Our lives are in the hands of the one who is infinitely greater than all the rulers and all the kingdoms of this world. And so I ask you, in whom are you placing your trust today? To whom are you looking to rescue you? Well, secondly, I told you I'd be quick on these. Secondly, we see that our God is Lord of all creation. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Now, throughout the course of time, man has tried to ponder the vastness of the universe and we still haven't even come close to discovering it all. But that baby in the manger, the one who is God with us, he holds all of creation in the palm of his hand. Isaiah comes back to this again in verse 26. He says, lift up your eyes on high. Who created all these things? He leads forth the starry host by number. He calls each one by name. You know, our scientists have run out of names. They now call stars like A436. Boring. Guess what? That's the wrong name. God has special names for all of them. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He is the Lord of all creation. Number three, verse 13, he's the Lord of all understanding. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who instructed him? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? And folks, if ever there was a rhetorical question, that's it. In other words, who can give God any advice? Who is above God to teach him anything? That baby in the manger is Lord of all wisdom and counsel and knowledge and understanding. No wonder Isaiah referred to him as the wonderful counselor. What does that mean for us? It means when you're searching for understanding 
and direction and meaning and purpose in life. There's no other place you can go to find it outside of the word of that baby in the manger. He's the Lord of all understanding. And we run back and forth and frantically look for answers to life. And people search for it under every rock and around every corner. And in their running back and forth, they pass by the manger a thousand times and never pause to consider that the answers for all of life, the understanding and meaning for all of life comes from the mouth of that one in the manger. It's incredible. Number four, we see that this baby is Lord of all nations. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. When you pour all the water out of a bucket, it looks empty. But if you look closely, you'll see little water droplets clinging to the inside edges of the bucket. And even the nations of the earth that seem so powerful are nothing more than a drop in the bucket compared to the greatness of God. Throughout the course of our nation's history, we've feared other nations at certain times, whether it's Russia or North Korea or China or Cuba or whoever. We need to remember those nations in God's sight compared to the greatness of that one in the manger are nothing but a drop of water in a bucket. Isaiah spoke about this back in chapter 17, verse 13. He said, The nations rage like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. It's no wonder that the wise men who could have gone and worshipped any king in any nation of their choice, instead came and worshipped this baby in the manger because he is king of all kings and lord of all nations. So the next time the global scene begins to rage like the roaring of many waters and fear tends to fill our hearts about what may happen next, just remember that nation, no matter how fearsome it may be, It's nothing more than a drop of water in an empty bucket. Number five, we see that this baby is the one whom we must come and worship as well because he is Lord of all worship. Verse 16 of Isaiah 40, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, or in other words, what it's saying there is it's not enough to burn altar fires for God. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn for altar fires nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Imagine a place where there is loads of wood, like the cedars of Lebanon, renowned in history for their massive trees, and where there are loads of animals for offering, which are exactly the elements that you need in order to offer a sacrifice to God. Even if you had an unlimited supply, even if you had enough trees and enough animals to burn offerings night and day, month after month, year after year, for eternity, it would still never be enough to offer a sufficient sacrifice to God. 
He deserves so much more than we would ever be able to give, even if we gave him everything. That's why at his birth, even the angels came out to worship him because this baby is the Lord of all worship. Why, though? Why does he deserve to be worshipped above all others? Why did the angels sing glory to God in the highest? Because he's also, verse 18, Lord of all competitors, number six. Lord of all competitors. Isaiah 40, 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? In other words, there are no other gods that can compare with him. Every other God is a human creation, a counterfeit, an illusion, an idol. He goes on in the next verse, verse 19, and he says, As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold and fashions chains of silver. How often in our daily life and our daily pursuits do we forget that idols of every kind, whatever they may be, never deserve our worship. It's just a person, but we give them our allegiance. It's just a brand, but we give it our allegiance. It's just an object, but we give it our allegiance. It's just a pursuit, but we give it our allegiance. And Isaiah says, no, this God is worthy of all your allegiance. He is the Lord over all his competitors. Isaiah is saying, in a sense, there are no competitors, but that does not mean there aren't people competing. Even in the Christmas narrative itself, there are competitors to the one who came. For instance, we see King Herod competing for allegiance. When Jesus was born, Herod ordered that all baby boys two years old and under, be put to death. And there's this tension that builds in the story about who's the real king? Who who will the throne actually belong to? Whose government will this really be? And Herod puts up his best effort against Jesus. But in the end, Herod goes on to die. And Jesus goes on to live and reign forever. This baby is the Lord of all competitors because we see finally in verses 21 and 22 that this baby is the Lord of all the universe. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its dwellers are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. This universe, as I said earlier, is so vast, human beings have never been able to discover it all. And it's just like one day God said, you know, I'm going to hang up a curtain. And he hung the entire expanse of the universe in place. That baby in the manger is Lord of all the universe. Which, of course, is John's perspective back in John 1.1 that I opened with when he says, In the beginning, when there were no nations, no rulers, no creation, no universe, in the beginning was, 
And every Jewish person wants to say God. Because they know Genesis 1.1 that says, in the beginning, God. But instead, John says, in the beginning was the Word. Which, as I said, is a name for Jesus. And what he's telling us is that there, in the beginning, before anything existed, was Jesus. That baby in the manger. Lord of all the universe. And, And what we need to understand this morning is something we already know, but it gets lost in everything else. And that is, the faith we have in Jesus is not just another faith alongside different world faiths that exist. As if it's a logical thing to say, well, I could follow this. It's got some good bits. I could follow that. It's, it seems nice, but I think I'll just follow Jesus. No, once we discover who that baby in the manger is, it becomes clear that Jesus is not one true God among many true gods. He is the only true God. He is the only choice. And he demands our total allegiance. And that bothers us sometimes. Jesus makes it clear, I will not be second to anyone. Why? Is he arrogant? No, he's God. As David Platt once said, people get concerned about the verses in the Bible where he says, I will not share my glory with another. And Platt says, who else would you give your glory to? And you're like, okay, I get it, I guess. (laughs) There's no one else. And he demands everything. I feel like sometimes it's easier to think about the shepherds or the animals around the manger because they're kind of fluffy and a little easier to grapple with than the one in the manger who says, I demand everything. But when we stop and we consider the majesty and the power and the greatness and the holiness of who that baby is, the only choice is to give our total allegiance to him because he is the Lord of all and he reigns supreme over everything and every one. And that's really the invitation. That's, that's really the point this morning is for us to recognize who that baby in the manger actually is and then for you to ask yourself honestly if you have ever surrendered everything to him. I don't mean to you, do you go to church. I don't mean to you, do you uh, pay offerings to a church. I'm not asking you if you're a good person or you give to charity. Those are all great things, but they're not the point. What I want us to think about this morning as we consider that seemingly helpless, ordinary baby in the manger is to realize who he is. He's the Lord of all. He is God with us. And to ask ourselves right now, can we honestly say we have surrendered everything to him? I wonder if all of us would be willing to pray today, Lord, I want you to be the center of my life because you are Lord of all and you alone are worthy. So as we begin now into this Christmas season with this simple brief message this morning, 
I pray that every time from now on that we see a manger scene. I pray that every time we hear about the stable and we think about that little innocent one lying in the feeding trough there, I pray that our thoughts will be taken back to the Word of God this morning and what it points out to us that that baby in the manger was none other than God with us. And to think about the implications and the impact that that should have on our daily life. Because if we have surrendered everything to him, if we are looking to him for direction and wisdom and protection and control and understanding, then we've nothing to fear. As it says, though the mountains fall and be cast into the sea, Whatever worse things that can happen in this world, folks, if our allegiance is to that one in the manger, the Lord of all, we must know that he holds all things in his hands. He is in control of it all. And if we are in him, there's no safer place we could be. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from Life Point Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.